Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to another episode of Reliability Matters. I'm so glad you're here today. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about something which might sound like a little bit off topic, but there is there are dots that will connect uh, what we're going to talk about to reliability um, in the electronic assembly industry. Uh, we, um, obviously, our goal in the electronic assembly industry, and any industry for that matter, is to build reliable products. And to build reliable products, we generally need reliable equipment. Uh, without reliable equipment, we certainly are not building reliable products. Um, and you don't want your product's reliability to be affected by a very unreliable piece of equipment. Um, we don't want our reliability to be based on the lowest common denominator of one piece of equipment in your entire facility. Um, and we're heavily in, in our industry and probably most others we're heavily trained on how to use that equipment and seldomly trained on how to maintain that equipment other than maybe, you know, greasing a chain or changing a fuse from, from time to time. Um, and that's where my guest uh, comes in. Uh, through uh, his company, uh, Eurodicio, um, they provide best practice uh, training on maintenance and, and other things. Basically, uh, they have a very unique approach to training. Uh, and without further ado, any further ado, I'm going to bring in uh, my guest today, uh, James. Um, I'm going to uh, Kovacevic. You got it. Oh, you I nailed it. it. I nailed it. Between the company name Eurodicio, which I slaughtered the first time we spoke, and, and today, uh, I've jumped the two hurdles. It's, it's smooth sailing from here. It is. You got the two hardest words to say out of the whole podcast out of the way. At least your, your last name can be phonetically uh, understood. Uh, Eurodicio requires, it's one of those you know, exceptions in the English language where uh, letters just form other sounds than they normally form. But... Uh, but uh, tell me what Eurodicio, where, where does that name come from? So it's Latin, and it means to learn to teach, which is part of our philosophy on educating people in maintenance and reliability. Um, we want to create subject matter experts that can go back to their companies and continue teaching others in their company about how do we maintain the equipment, how do we get more reliable equipment, and so on and so forth. Yeah, excellent. Well, it all makes sense. So I'm going to read just a really quick excerpt from your uh, website, and I'm going to ask you some questions about it, if you don't mind. Uh, We expect our learners to go back to their companies and make a real difference in operations and the bottom line. Uh, Our sophisticated training approach, which blends customized subject matter, experiential training, project-based learning, online support, and comprehensive personal coaching enables high knowledge transfer and retention. Trained in behavior-based adult facilitation techniques, recognized as best practices by the Association for Tele- Talent Development. I, I never knew there was an association for talent development. I would have thought that was probably a talent agency for aspiring children or something, but um, obviously I'm wrong there. Our team is well known in the maintenance and reliability engineering uh, community as energetic, dynamic, and effective educators. Now, the purpose of reading all that uh, isn't to really uh, run a commercial for your DCO, but there are some words in there that really stood out. Um, you, you talk about a sophisticated training approach. Can you describe what you mean by a sophisticated uh, training approach? 
So the sophisticated training approach is really to make sure that the students are able to utilize the knowledge they get for training. Um, everyone likes to go for training, or most people do, especially when it's in nice locations like Charleston, South Carolina, or San Diego, California, places like that. But companies really need that return on investment for that training. And that's where that sophisticated training approach comes in. It leverages a lot of the latest techniques in adult learning, um, provides a safe environment to not only learn the techniques, but to try them. So if we're doing an FMEA, for example, or we're doing a root cause analysis, learning that and practicing it in the classroom on a predefined scenario gives the students an opportunity to make a mistake, learn from that mistake. So when they actually go to their site, they're able to execute with some level of confidence. Um, there's nothing worse than you know what we call call training for entertainment value or entertainment purposes. Um, we actually want our students to walk away and do um, the tasks that they came for, to training for. Yeah, I guess if it was for entertainment purposes, you'd just do a training conference in Vegas and you know make it one of those boondoggle type type trips. Um, exactly, exactly. You talk also about behavior-based adult uh, facilitation techniques. Uh, lots of words there. Tell me what that means. So I'll probably get it wrong for um, the organization's definition, but to me, it's really flexing your, your training style for those in the room. Everyone learns a little bit differently. Some people learn better by reading. Some people learn better by doing. Others need a combination of these tasks. So the way we organize our training is very block-based. With What enables, here's a block of instruction followed by a hands-on activity to reinforce that concept. By doing that, we're addressing all the different learning types, but also giving people the opportunity to chunk the information, if you will, so it's easier to retain. You're not going to listen to us ramble on for four hours about a topic. It's a 20-minute blob. Then we're going to actually do something with it. I, I noticed um, uh, when researching your company uh, on at your f a training facility, which I'll describe in a little bit, very unusual training facility uh, in terms of venue, uh, there are exercises that are, are done. I saw an example of someone sitting on the flight deck. Everyone's going to know, what are you, what's he talking about, flight deck? They actually, their training facility is on a retired aircraft carrier. If that's not unusual, I don't know what is. But I saw, you know, examples of, you know, passing a, some looks, looks like some big steel rod or something from person to person. It's, it sounds like there's, there's um, more than just technical training material uh, applied in your training exercises. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the people that come to our training are engineers, mechanics, reliability, maintainability specialists, those types of people. The technical stuff they get with not a lot of effort, if you will. The challenge is, is what we find in most organizations is being able to implement those new tools, those new technical tools. Um, and that's the whole change management piece, the cultural change piece. So all of our training has a component of that of how do you actually implement this when you get back to your facility? Um, you know, we can have the best FMEA process, best RCA process, and so on and so forth. But if you're not able to get others in your company on board with it, using the tools, participating in some of the activities, that sort of thing, it's not going to be successful. And once again, you don't have that ROI. So it's not only the technical side, but the change management people side that I think is not often utilized enough in our industry. That's got to be a huge focus to be successful. Yeah, I agree. 
Uh, your, your company states training has changed, students have changed uh, thanks to the internet, uh, social media, and other forms of technology. The old ways of doing things just don't work. Uh, students are not looking to learn in the same old ways. You have to change to meet their needs and expectations. I totally agree with that statement, I, although I, I, I wouldn't have thought of applying it to, to, to what you do. Um, but certainly in the world of marketing uh, uh, campaigns and media and, and exposure and, and things like that, the old ways don't work anymore. The old ways are, you know, you're handing out, you're handing out um, VHS tapes, you know, and there's no VCRs, <laughs> you know, to, to run that analogy. Um, so how has the internet, social media, and other forms of technology uh, affected training? And how do these newer communication technologies, uh, or how have they uh, contributed to the obsolescence of uh, traditional training methods? Yeah, so... The way I look at it is, you know, technology allows us to do a lot of interesting things um, when it comes to training in the classroom or training remotely in that matter. Um, some of the tools that we'll actually leverage in a lot of our training classes is augmented reliability is what we call it, but it's really augmented reality. So we have various apps available where if we're working on a pump, for example, as a training aid, they can actually use this app and look at the pump in 3D model it, spin it around so they can see how the pump is built, that type of thing, which then really enables them to get almost hands-on with that remotely. So we leverage those types of technologies. We'll also rev leverage e-learning, and it's not your traditional e-learning where you're going to sit and watch a 30-minute video. It's usually a highly interactive e-learning where, depending on which path you take, is going to change the outcome. And once again, they're chunked in smaller blocks, so we're not overwhelming individuals within knowledge. Um, in addition to that, just sitting in a classroom, that doesn't work. So as you mentioned, you know, we're located on the aircraft carrier, USS Yorktown. We leverage that as our learning lab. We want to talk about vibration. We want to talk about thermography or ultrasound. A lot of the systems on that ship still work. So we're going to go to that area and use those tools. Or if we want to practice doing a root cause analysis or an FMEA, we can go to the engine room. We can go to the catapult room. We can go up on the flight deck and look at some of the aircraft and do FMEAs or RCAs on some of the issues we see up there. So it's really making sure we're getting people up, getting them moving, and relating it in a way that you know really connects with people. It's not just theory, but uh, practicability for us. I can't help but think that maybe if you guys took over, um, started working on that ship uh, in the 60s, maybe it would still be in service. Just keep it going. <laughs> so do older students uh, face the same challenges with traditional you know, so-called older uh, training methods as younger students. Um, what's the I transition to bring old folks you know, with traditional skills, let's, let's call this um, experienced folks with traditional skills, into this new uh, era, new age of, of, of technology-based information delivery? Yeah, I think, you know, for the most part, they want to see the same things. They don't want to sit in a chair for eight hours and listen to someone lecture about a topic, they want to actually get their hands on it, right? Um, even myself, when I go to training, I don't want to sit there. I want to know how is this going to help me? How does it work? Let me start using it, that type of thing. Um, and I think the older learners are the exact same way. Most of the learners we get, you know, they're more than capable of working through those other tools, technologies, etc. cetera. Um, so I really don't think it's a big difference from 
older versus newer learners. There might be a slight learning curve with the learning management system for accessing e-learning, that type of thing, but that's a very minor, minor thing to overcome. But I think they want the same thing as the, the younger generation. Um, tell me the why I need it. Show me how it works. Show me why it benefits everyone. Okay, and let's go do it. Yeah, very good. Uh, explain how augmented reality, I saw some video on your on your website, uh, people wearing, you know, uh, a AR goggles. Uh, how has augmented reality made its way into, into training? Yeah, so there's a couple different ways we can leverage that. Um, so the one referring to the goggles, actually, that's an activity we do with some of our IBL students. And I believe we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But that activity there is really focused on communication. How do we get good communication lines in place? And once again, that goes back to that change management side. So in that example, we're leveraging augmented uh, reality to put students in an immersive environment where they have to think on their feet, they have to communicate well, that sort of thing. So it helps build those skills. Other instances, we'll go back to we have an engine room or an equipment room. And we'll walk through that in a AR to identify what are the assets we need. How do we build the hierarchy? How do we get the nameplate data off it? So we can do these things even virtually for students that may not be able to come on site or are doing some of this asynchronously through the learning process. There's a term that your company uses, inspired blended learning. Um, what is that? What, explain what that, what that involves. So the inspired blended learning process is really our approach to making sure our students are successful and able to return the investment of their training to the, the company. So that inspired blending learning process makes up, is composed of a lot of different learning aspects. The first thing that initially happens when a student enrolls in IBL is they start working with their sponsor at their company to define the problem they're trying to solve. And that problem varies. It could be a process problem. It could be a you know, lack of uh, uptime problem. It could be reliability, availability, maintainability. It could be all those different problems that they see in their facility, but they're targeting one specific thing. Maybe, for example, we have this machine that has poor reliability. So that's our target. We know our machine. We know what we want to do. And they're going to define that project. They're going to do that through a combination of some e-learning modules to help them build a charter, build a data collection plan, that sort of thing, as well as on the phone with a coach, helping, helping them develop that charter, that sort of thing, and work with their sponsor to get alignment. Once that is complete, then they're going to come on site, and we're going to go to the aircraft carrier, and we are going to do a week-long kickoff, and that is where we do a lot of the hands-on instructor-led training sort of thing. We go through that, we present the charters, we work with the students on refining those charters a bit more, and at that point, we can really customize what is the follow-on training they're going to get. So for example, if we're really focused on work management, being able to plan work, schedule work, execute work within our facility from a maintenance department standpoint, then we're gonna send them down one learning path. If it's really focused on improving reliability of an asset, we're gonna send them down an asset performance path. If they're really focused on trying to clean up their existing PM programs because you know it might not be effective, it's too big, so on and so forth, then they go through a different path. If there's maintainability issues, they might go through that path and so on and so forth. So we have the ability to customize all these different learning paths based on that specific charter. Once they've done that and we have their uh, learning path defined, that student is going to go back and they're going to do a combination of some e-learning, some reading, 
they're going to be doing some homework assignments, practical application requirements, we call it, where they're actually going to do an FMEA or an RCA or so on and so forth. And they're going to submit it to us to review and grade and provide feedback. So it ends up being this longer curriculum leveraging instructional training, hands-on activities, e-learning, and coaching as well. At the end of it, they're going to complete that project charter that they originally came up with. That's going to be submitted to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville for a certification from their university or school of maintainability. And they walk away with a, a certificate from them as well as completing that project. So your, your training is not, people don't sign up for your training courses to learn how to work on a specific widget. They're not product specific. Um, in other words, you don't have a, um, a bearing room and a pump room or a, you know, whatever it, it, it can, can it apply to pretty much anyone whose responsibility is to maintain any type of equipment? It, is it more higher level as opposed to down the rabbit hole specifically torque this screw number five to so many, you know, uh, to a certain torque level? It's, it's more about the process rather than about the specific task. Am I correct? For the most part, yes. We are using the same tools that all reliability professionals use, FMEAs, RCAs, you know, those types of things, just applied to ensuring we're getting good asset performance. Now, there are certain instances where we do have, you know, bearing heaters, we have demo, demo stands to remove and install bearings, align shafts, that sort of stuff. So we do that stuff as well with a lot of our partners. Um, so sometimes that is the focus. It's a precision maintenance training class for the week. Um, but once again, that is precision maintenance techniques across a wide range of assets, not on this specific maker model of a pump or this specific blower and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Learn to learn, uh, rather learn yes. to teach uh, also. Uh, do a lot of your students leave your course and become teachers within their company based on what they've learned uh, is that do you do you do you teach how to teach or is it more um, teach how to do so we start off with the teach how to do because you have to understand how to do it before you can teach it effectively so a lot of them start off with that process here's how I do an FMEA here's I here's how you facilitate a fault tree or logic tree um, those types of things but then you quickly find that with all the added stuff that we provide, aside from just the technical side, the leadership side, the change management side, that sort of thing, they quickly rise up within their organization as leaders. We have quite a few clients that, depending on the role, you're coming through an IBL training, and they do that not just for the technical expertise, but for the leadership growth that they experience. So they end up becoming managers, senior managers, so on and so forth fairly quickly because they are able to influence their team, train their team up, and that sort of thing as a result of it at the end. Yeah, excellent. Uh, what are some of the common mistakes that companies make within their maintenance practices? Is there a is, is there a kind of a usual suspect list of? Oh yeah, we've seen that before. That that's fairly common. There's quite a few, and you know this isn't specific to an industry because we work across all kinds of different industry or verticals, if you will. Um, some of the big stuff we see is just not very good PMs. Um, inspect pump, inspect blower, um, that type of stuff. What am I looking at? What's the failure mode I'm trying to detect? You know, if we don't have that, every single mechanic that's out there doing that work is going to give you a different result. So how do you know if that PM is actually effective? 
So, you know, making sure you have very descriptive PMs, we know exactly what we're looking at, that sort of thing. That's one of the big ones. The other thing we see a lot of is we don't have good job plans. So our mechanics go to do work, but they don't have a good parts list. They take something apart and they're missing half the parts. So now they got to put, put it back together with worn or broken parts, get it to chug along for the next couple of weeks until those parts actually show up. So that whole work management process. Lastly, I'd say one of the big things is that per, per, precision maintenance side of things. Um, when we take something apart and we put it back together, is it actually going to start up and run correctly? Is it going to last as long as it should? So I'll use a V-belt, for example. A lot of organizations of V-belt fails. What do we see the mechanics or technicians doing? They cut the old V-belt off and they roll that new V-belt on. Now, what do we just do there? We at least half the life of that V-belt because we stretched it. We may have damaged it when we rolled it over the pulleys. There's also a big safety risk there with potentially catching your finger and so on and so forth. And as a result, that belt's not going to last as long as it should. So by focusing on those precision maintenance techniques, we should actually get the life out of the, out of the components we're installing. How many people actually get the L10 life out of a bearing? Very few. Yeah. You, you, you stated earlier that education without application is just entertainment, um, which I, I, I get that. Uh, I, in looking at, at some of the video of your training, there does seem to be entertainment, not in, in, a, in a way that, that brings your point home. Um, I, I don't think you guys are education without entertainment. But there, there are clearly ways that your company is, has um, designed to make the learning experience i think fun is probably the the, the wrong word in, in this context but but maybe you know, the, maybe it's right uh, there seems to be a lot of exercises outside of you know torque settings and pulley and, and you know um, stuff like that uh, that that um really creates like almost like leadership training and and team building and things like that tell me more about some of those out of the classroom experiences where uh, you're, you're building the, the, the teamwork capabilities of, of a person and yeah. less so uh, technical matters. Yeah, absolutely. So for that, that example you referenced earlier where they're on the flight deck with that um, look like a pole, that's a whole activity on that you can use for root cause analysis, team building, leadership, all those different things. And I don't want to talk too much about it because I'll give it away for those that have not yet done it. But that is a simple 10, 15 minute exercise that really emphasizes the need for leadership, communication, roles and responsibilities, um, and getting everyone on the same page. Some of the IBL trainings that we do as well, we may leverage one of those um, escape rooms as an activity in an afternoon or an evening where that team has to learn to work together. They got to work through those different problems and apply some of the root cause analysis techniques, if you will, in more of a real life setting. Um, so we leverage a lot of those things because what we find is if it's not interesting, if it's not fun, people aren't going to retain it as well. So by doing those types of activities, leveraging it, whether it's on the flight deck, whether it's in an escape room, there's a whole host of other things that we'll do. Um, makes it enjoyable so they remember it and when they remember it then they're able to apply it yeah that makes a lot of sense i remember several years ago i was um, giving a <laughs> pep talk to my employees and 
I, it, the whole subject was about exceeding our customers' expectations. And uh, many, many years ago, um, at, in another life, I was working next to an old Whammo factory. Whammo is a toy manufacturer in Southern California. And that was the factory where they made Super Bowls. And, but not the Super Bowls you can buy at the toy store today. They stopped making these because they were actually very dangerous. They were about two inches in diameter, solid rubber. And when you bounce them, I mean, I think we could get Jeff Bezos to, into space even faster <laughs> if we just strapped him to one of these Super Bowls and slammed it against the ground. They, were, they just produced this, this bounce effect that no one was expecting. So I had everyone stand in a circle, and, and I gave everyone one of these Super Bowls uh, and um, hold their hands straight out, and then on three, just release the ball. Don't throw it down. Just release the ball. And, of course, the ball pretty much came you know, within a millimeter or so back up to their hand, which they didn't expect. And they all jumped and I said you know that's exceeding the expectation so I, I totally get the, um, the, the the example based application of that of that type of uh, information and it does and, and it has to be fun I mean it has to be you know the, the medicine has to taste good right yeah um, spoonful of sugar so, so to speak um, you're you talk about custom learning experiences how, how would one give me an example of, of what uh, your company would do to customize a, a learning experience yeah, absolutely. So if it is, say, a public IBL class where we're having multiple IBLs come from different companies, you know, that instructor-led piece, that's that part is going to be pretty standard unless, you know, we get a certain request where, hey, make sure you talk about this or that type of thing. The, the customization really comes afterwards there. Like I mentioned previously, if, you know, depending on what learning objective they have or what their project objective is, they're going to go down different learning paths. But it doesn't really just stop there. For example, we often work with the uh, student sponsor. And we may come to realize through the student sponsor or through our, through our own observations that you know, they need a little bit more work with presentation design or Excel skills or uh, communication skills or, or whatever that may be. So we have a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, which allows us to really add these extra modules to their curriculum to get them up to speed and help improve some of those other skills that, you know, they might need some help to make them successful long term. Um, you know, for example, Microsoft Project, Excel, leadership, communication, presentation design, all those different types of things. We'll sprinkle in there with the students to make sure we're, they're getting the full well-rounded experience to make them successful. I can come up with the best plan, but if I can't communicate and share that plan well, probably not going to go anywhere. So when we can equip them with those soft skills and customize that training that way, it goes a long way. And then from a technical side, because we have a very large e-learning library with, I don't even remember how many modules we have now, if they're focused on a PM optimization um, learning path, for example, but we know they are doing a lot of root cause analysis, we can sprinkle in those root cause analysis modules into their traditional PM optimization learning path to give them that reinforcement to help them with that because we know that's something else they're doing in their organization. So we can really customize a lot of these things and everything we add in there, our coaches are able to help them through that. So for example, I coach primarily all the spare parts IBLs that we, or spare parts management IBL learning paths. So anytime anyone's working on how do I optimize min-maxes, I'm helping them work through that, but then also how are we going to present this? How are we going to show the return on investment? What 
categories can we use for financial savings and which ones can we are off limits for your company, that sort of thing. So we're helping them through that entire process. And that's how we really customize it because you get a dedicated coach for that entire curriculum. Excellent. Uh, your, your bio states, uh, through uh, your career, uh, you've made it a personal mission to make uh, industry a profitable place where individuals and manufacturers possess uh, the resources, knowledge, and courage to substantially lower their operating costs. I understand the concept behind the resources and the knowledge. The courage word uh, was, was surprising to me. Well, it shouldn't be surprising. I'm surprising you said it because I hadn't thought about it before, but you're right. Uh, tell me more about what you mean by the courage required. So it's pretty easy to stay status quo, especially if we're in a profitable position. It requires courage, I think, to take that first step and start learning about how do we improve reliability, maintainability, process control, whatever it may be that we're having problems with or identify an opportunity with. It takes courage to be that first person to walk out there, raise their hand and say, we need to fix this or we can get better if we do this. And I think that's missed in a lot of organizations. A lot of organizations are satisfied with the status quo um, and they don't really want to take that next step because Let's face it, it's scary. I want to implement a new maintenance program. Am I guaranteed it's going to be successful? Absolutely not. We may stumble, we may fall, we may make a mistake, and so on and so forth. And that makes me look bad now. So I think it requires a tremendous amount of courage for leaders, technicians, whoever it is in the organization that's trying to make that next step forward to do that. It's not easy. Do, do you also train on how to sell these best practices to their management? In other words, you're getting disciples, you know, um, you're making disciples out of these folks and they have to go back uh, frequently and sell management on maybe some new ideas and, and provide management some courage, you know, some encouragement for courage. Uh, I, I assume since they're being sent to your facility, there's already some type of buy-in from management, right? Because they wouldn't pay the money to send their people if they thought everything was perfect. But, but still, they might come back with some uh, inconvenient truths. And so, so how, think, do you, how do you prepare them for that? Yeah, I think that's the key there. Um, if they wouldn't be a training if they didn't have some level of buy-in. But that might be a high-level buy-in or, you know, conceptually, we, we agree this is the right thing to do. But once you start getting into it and you start getting into identifying all the gaps, opportunities, and so on and so forth, Sometimes, in my personal experience, I feel that senior managers don't like what some of these students learn because they're like, there's no way there's that big of an opportunity out there. So then it becomes that whole process of how do you influence up? How do you communicate this in a meaningful way? How do you build a project plan that, you know, maybe there's all this opportunity in the organization, but let's start here. Let's do a little pilot. Let's build it out. Let's gain some support, some followers, and that sort of thing, and, you know, kind of build influence that way. Um, so throughout the curriculum that we're doing from an IBL perspective, there is all of that. We're reviewing presentations that the students are preparing for their managers or senior managers. We're helping with all those things to make sure that they can go and be successful in that communication and influencing people, if you will. Um, is it always successful? Not 100% because let's face it, not everybody wants to change. Change is a very hard thing to get organizations to do. So we, we have approach we try to follow, which is really that project is a very focused 
pilot area, prove out the concepts, show the investment, show the returns. Then from there, you can replicate that same process over and over on different lines, different machines, different areas, whatever it may be that you're targeting. Um, so they get a repeatable process out of that as well. And as they keep having continued success with that, influence grows, that sort of thing as well. Excellent. Finally, your facility, a lot of companies would lease space in a multi-tenant business park or an industrial building, but no, uh, you guys uh, go, went to a very uh, unusual venue uh, for to conduct your training. Uh, tell me more about uh, the the uh, venue that you have, you know, we talked about it, it's an aircraft carrier, but tell me more about why there and what are some of the, you know, potentially unique uh, attributes of being on a uh, 33,000 ton, uh, 800 foot plus long aircraft carrier. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the story of us getting on there, that was actually before my time. When I joined Iridicio, they were already on that ship for a few years, but we were based on the USS Yorktown in Charleston Harbor. That ship provides so many opportunities for so many different reasons. One, it's a completely different learning environment. You're not going to a regular hotel room or a training area or so on and so forth. Um, so it creates a lot of excitement there. The big thing for us is because it is a ship. There's systems everywhere, mechanical systems, electrical systems. There's all these areas where we can actually go directly apply the tools and concepts we're learning against an asset that's right there. We want to talk about any types of the predictive maintenance technologies. We can go do that, looking at some of the operating systems that on that ship. We want to do an FMEA. There's compressors, there's cannons, there's boilers, there's turbines, there's all these things on there. We can use, go see and access to facilitate those types of things. Same with root cause analysis, job planning. We have unlimitless amount of opportunities for different job plans so people can practice developing maintenance procedures, job plans, bills and materials, those types of things. It gives us a huge opportunity to really connect the conceptual piece that we're teaching in class with real life practicality because it's right there. I assume that uh, this ship that you're on that was built you know, more than 80 years ago, probably back in the days before air conditioning, I'm, I'm assuming that there's been some modern enhancements to the ship to make you and your customers' uh, experience on the ship a little bit more pleasant? Yes. So there is air conditioning in, in our training areas. All that stuff is there. Um, you know, you, you still got low, low headroom, especially going through some of the bulkheads. Um, so you still have that, can't change that. But no, it is, the areas we work have been updated um, to modern training standards, you know, big TVs on all the walls, whiteboards, flip charts, all that stuff is organized to make it a good training environment. But it is still very unique. It is still very, very unique. I can just see a bunch of students around a table with, um, remember the old uh, movies where they had a, like, like a map of the battle and, and someone would have this long stick and they would move an object on the table to show geographically where it is. I can just, I can just picture a, a training exercise, you know, where um, you're, you're moving FMEA models, you know, on, from a long stick and all surrounding. Um, anyway, uh, James, this has been very interesting. Thanks for spending time with me today. I, I, uh, I really appreciate the work that you, you guys do, and I respect the work you do. Uh, train the trainer, 
really, and, and, and train the maintenance people in best practices that they could bring back to their company and, um, and influence the outcome. And I love your original statement in your bio, which is, which is what caused me to reach out to you. You, know, you talk about improving profitability. And a lot of, I think a lot of uh, maintenance mindset is maintenance is a cost. And it, it really, yeah, it is a cost, but it's an, you know, it has an ROI if it's done properly. And I think Absolutely. some of that might be lost on people. They just look at the, the maintenance cost. I know in our industry, you know, we're, we're an equipment manufacturer. And although we design, we intend to design our equipment to run without, you know, with minimal maintenance, with minimal repair for a very long period of time stuff happens and and unexpected stuff happens and as machines get older they get a little bit less predictable and um there there we have some customers that are contract assemblers and they're just known by reputation to just run their machines into the ground and every once in a while we see one of our old machines on the used market and someone will call us and say hey you know can you run the serial number on that machine is that should i buy it and uh, you know, we'll run the serial number and we'll see, oh no, we know where it came from. Run, you know, not that our equipment isn't good, but we know that that particular environment was to just run the machines to death until the last bolt falls off and then, yep. and then sell it as used. You know, it looks good, but it's never been maintained. So uh, I, I do know from personal experience that, that maintenance certainly has a, an ROI behind it. And in terms of reliability, I think a lot of people kind of miss that too is, is, you know, reliable machines produce predictably reliable results. And as I said in my opening, um, this show is about reliability. There certainly is a very direct line between proper maintenance and reliability of the end use product that the customer is, is producing. Yep. So I would actually take it one step further and I would say you need reliable processes within your maintenance group to enable reliable maintenance to take place, then you get your reliable process on that equipment. Right. That's what you guys are all about. You guys are, are, are really training on the reliable process. Um, yes. And, and the, uh, the standards that one should work under, not just, as I said earlier, not just the torque settings of, of you know, one particular bolt or something. All right, James, this, was, this has been very informative. Thanks so much for being my guest today. I know you have a hard stop, and I think we're giving you plenty of time. You can go for a coffee and, and grab a sandwich before your, your hard stop. So uh, thanks for being my guest on Reliability Matters. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space and the innovations and technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations and Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters. 